He is risen. He is risen indeed. For hundreds and hundreds of years, followers of Jesus have met one another with that greeting during the Easter season. And when we do that, we are affirming the experience of a handful of people who lived a long time ago, who saw Jesus die, and then who experienced a series of events that led them to believe that Jesus had defeated death, that he had risen from death into life. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, in greeting one another this way, we affirm that death does not have the power that we think it has. We affirm that dead is not dead and that life triumphs over death. Now, at NRCC, each Easter and each Christmas, we rehearse our story. We tell and retell and retell some part of it, and we focus on some dimension of it, and we look for, in the telling and the retelling, our own place in that larger story. (laughs) And so this Easter is no exception. I get to talk now. (laughs) So today, we're going to retell part of our story, and we're going to look for our place in it. Now, today is my 51st Easter service. Now, I'm pretty sure that my mother carried me to Easter services when I was an infant, and uh, I am was thinking as I was getting ready, I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking when I lived overseas, I might have missed one because there might not have been an Easter service around. But I, I really don't, I can't remember missing it. I just, I think, fifty-one times now, I have been to an Easter service. Now, in my early years, when I heard this part of our story, the resurrection of Jesus part of our story. I had some very simple childlike ideas about it. When I heard the term Jesus rose again, I took it quite simply. One minute Jesus was dead, and the next minute Jesus was not dead. One minute Jesus was in the grave, the next minute Jesus was alive and was walking around. He was dead, and then he woke up. Now, I never really put much imagination into what happened in the tomb. If I had... I probably would have imagined it's something like this. I probably would have imagined it's something like coming out of a very deep sleep. That there would have been in my imagination some eyes flickering. There would have been in my imagination a little discombobulation unwrapping the grave clothes. I would have imagined Jesus standing up and stretching and getting the blood pumping through all of those muscles that had been sitting still for three days. I would have imagined Jesus then walking out of the grave and maybe nodding to the angel who was there who had moved the stone, and I would have had this kind of imagination in my mind. But having heard the story as early in life as I did, never really thought through, never really did that kind of imagination. I just took it as it was presented to me, unquestioned and unconsidered. Now, if I'd heard the story later in life, I might have had questions like, what did Jesus wear after he took off the grave clothes? (laughs) And did he borrow the gardener's clothes for a little while? And is that why Mary thought that he was the gardener when she first met him? And given how well known Jesus was in Jerusalem, how is it that it was only the uh, disciples that recognized him while he was walking around? 
But again, I never put that much imagination into the resurrection when I was a child. It was only when I got older and I was challenged by people who had some real trouble, some real doubts about the whole resurrection thing, that I actually began to focus my imagination on what it might have been like. I realized that there were no eyewitnesses inside the tomb. There was nobody there to report what it was like, nobody there to say what had gone on. Imagination was at all that we had to help us think about what had happened. And when I put my imagination to it, I started to come up with a little bit of a different hunch about what it might have been like than I had, would have had when I was a child. I began to think about a picture that was maybe a little bigger than I might have imagined as a child. And I began to think of it as a singular event in human history, a cataclysmic event in human history, like something that had never happened before and that really didn't fit into our categories of normal life. I no longer at this stage in my life, in my imagination, think of the resurrection as Jesus simply awakening from the dead. When I imagine what happened in the dark tomb, I think of it as something completely different than anything that we understand, an entirely different kind of phenomenon. Rather than Jesus' old life and old body simply being revivified, revised, revived, I now come in my imagination to think of it as something more than that. More than Jesus waking up, yawning, stretching, and then walking out. As I begin to reflect on Jesus doing the things that Jesus did after the resurrection, I begin to see Jesus appearing places. We read that in the text earlier. The Jesus that came around after the resurrection kind of stopped walking through doorways like he had before, and he began to be appearing He didn't get in a boat and sail places like he had done when he was in Galilee. He just showed up. He didn't borrow a donkey to get from here to there like he had done before. He was just there. Jesus began appearing in the midst of people's lives while they were doing other stuff. He just, he was the same, but he was different. Jesus, after the resurrection, was something different than Jesus had been before the resurrection. Now, in Paul's letter to the people who lived in Galatia, that letter, by the way, was written about 10 years before any of the other uh, uh, accounts that we have of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Mark is the first one that was written, and it was drawn from Q, but that was written after Paul had already written this letter to the people in Galatia. And in that letter, Paul told people that he had seen Jesus. But it's pretty clear from the context that it wasn't seeing like I am seeing you and you are seeing me right now, not a flesh and bones kind of seeing. He said it this way, it pleased God to reveal his son to me. Well, in that letter and in all Paul's other letters, he doesn't make a distinction between his encounter with the risen Jesus and the disciples' encounters with the risen Jesus. So I suspect that those people's experience of the risen Jesus was not 
completely different than Paul's, that there was some similar characteristic. Jesus appeared to them, but they all saw him differently now. Mary didn't recognize him in the garden when she saw him. That was different. Jesus was the same, but Jesus was different. Two disciples on the road walking to Emmaus walked several miles with him, engaged in deep discussion with him, sat down at the table and ate with him, and they didn't recognize him until he was gone. That was the same, but it was very different. Jesus didn't live with them now. He simply came to them. He came in a series of strange but seemingly very spiritual appearances. But the outcome of these appearances, the outcome of these being with thems, overwhelmed the disciples in its impact. And in those appearances, they were transformed. They had been uh, a fearful group of people. They had been a defeated group of followers of a master. But now they became a dynamic community, and they went out and they changed history. Something happened when Jesus appeared to them. Now, I don't think that what Mary and the disciples experienced was a resuscitated body. It wasn't an encounter with a body like Jesus had had before, a sit up and stretch and walk out of the tomb kind of body. I've come to imagine that what they experienced was an encounter with something that was bigger than any of the categories that they had in their minds up to that point. We say all the time that if we look through the life of Jesus, it's one series of reality box-blowing experiences after another. Here, you think sick is sick, watch this. Now that reality box that you have isn't true. You think hungry is hungry, watch this. You think that this is the way that you treat enemies, watch this. And box after box after box that we have our reality tightly tucked into, Jesus comes along and just kind of knocks out the walls of these boxes, one after another, after another, after another. And I think this is one more of those reality box blowing experiences, perhaps the biggest of all. You think dead is dead? Watch this. So I imagine this totally extraordinary experience. A body that is a body, and it is somehow spiritual. A body with the power to manifest when and where it chooses. A body that communicates divine life whenever it appears a body that can manifest with flesh and bones and eat fish, a body that's not less physical, but is something more than physical in addition, a body that could morph the physical world around it into a greater spiritual reality. Over the 51 Easter's that I've gotten to think about and think rethink this story, I've come to imagine that this body was just blowing people's understanding of reality. I've come to imagine that these accounts that we have of it in Scripture are attempts by these early followers of Jesus to express a mystery that is beyond expressing, to describe an experience that they didn't have vocabulary to describe, to tell a story that burst into their lives unexpectedly, a story of such mystery that it broke down the categories they had, the vocabulary that they had, the, the neural pathways that they had to describe the reality that they were experiencing. Listen to Paul as he struggles to uh, use language to describe it. He says, now when the perishable is then clothed with the imperishable, 
And when the mortal has been clothed with immortality, when this strange thing happens, then the saying that was written a long time ago comes true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So I think these people were trying to grapple with a mystery that transcended all the categories of rationality that they had. They were trying to use metaphor to explain the unexplainable. Here's one of the metaphors they used. They said a seed falls into the ground and it dies. And then when it comes up, it's not a seed anymore. It's become a plant. It went in one thing and it came out something else. What was sown was perishable. What was raised is imperishable. Jesus was sown as a physical body but raised as something else. This is awkward language, and it's troubling language, but I'm imagining it's the best that they had to discuss what they had experienced. So they're grappling the best they can to deal with a category-blowing experience. But that's not all they tell us. It's worse. That's not the whole mystery. That's not the whole story. Because they go on to say, and this crazy thing, this crazy thing that they saw happen with Jesus, this sowing something perishable and reaping something imperishable, this death to a mortal body and this life to an immortal one, this was only the beginning. This was the first time that something like this had happened, but their testimony was that it would be happening again and again. And again, and again. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to those people who lived in the city of Corinth. I'm telling you about this mysterious new kind of reality that I've seen. The same crazy thing that happened to Jesus, my words, not his. The same crazy thing that happened to Jesus happens to us. We will not sleep when we die. We will be changed in a flash. In a twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed. Our deadness will be raised into that same kind of imperishable reality that Jesus' deadness was raised into. We too will be changed as Jesus is changed. Now the people who witnessed this reality-altering event of Jesus' resurrection began to talk about it in ways that had never been heard before. They began to talk about eternal life for mortal beings. They talked about the risen Christ becoming for them a foreshadowing of a whole new order of creation. That Jesus' new spiritual body became the first fruit of a holy resurrected universe. That like Him, we will breathe our last one day. And when we do, we will sow our physical bodies into the ground. However, like Jesus, then we will be raised in some kind of spiritual, physical reality that we just can't understand that the universe will sow a physical body, but the universe will be raised in a spiritual reality. Now, I kind of suspect that they had no idea what they were talking about. I kind of suspect 
that this reality-blowing experience had disoriented them. That Jesus, first he does these crazy reality-bending things while he's on earth. He goes out and he splits a little bit of food into a lot of food. He goes out and he denies the law of physics and he tells the wind and the waves to be quiet. He goes out and he tells people that leprosy that has been the scourge of their society is not that big a deal. He touches people. He just bends everyone's picture of reality. And then he shows up in this post-death, more real but strangely different spiritual kind of existence And they experience this unexplainable thing. And I suspect that they were doing their best to try and explain something that they couldn't really explain. Jesus was this way. I saw him. He He was like me. He had this physical body thing. And then Jesus was that way. And not like me. And in a body, but not in a body, but somehow totally different. It was a different kind of reality and seeing this unseeable thing, and experiencing this unexperienceable thing, their eyes were open to some kind of thing going on in the divine they could not have imagined. That they began to see their own reality, the reality that they lived in day after day after day, as some kind of shadowy, less real experience, because they had seen something that blew their minds and said, oh, there's another reality that is so far beyond this reality. They had seen this state of divine connectedness and this state of divine purpose, this divine existence, this divine thing that was so far beyond their understanding, so different than their lives when they got up and they made their breakfast and they fed their kids and they went to work and they went to bed and they had children and they raised those children so different from this reality. There's this whole other reality out there. They had seen something that had never been seen, some kind of spiritual physical, some kind of real unreal, some kind of unbeing state of being, and they began to think in new categories that didn't have words to explain them. And so trying to explain, they stumbled on along their best, trying to talk about this great and fantastic thing that they had seen, and this thing caused them to see a different, bigger purpose to life. This thing energized them to start imagining the words that Jesus spoke while he was here had something behind them that this reality was a different kind of reality and they were energized to go out and change the earth. And they were energized to go out and work toward God's purposes, making things on earth as they have been in heaven to love people. And to listen to Jesus' words about caring for the poor and for caring for the downtrodden, to revolutionize the Roman Empire with this good news of love, to turn the world upside down with the vision that they had seen, this is not it, they testified. There is something more. This is not all there is, they proclaimed. There is something more. And somehow the pathway into that something more lies in what Jesus taught us about loving one another and about caring for our enemies and something about what Jesus taught us about God being love and it not being about religious rule. Something about that is this pathway into this new reality that we've seen. We saw something weird in Jesus' body that makes us think we ought to listen to Jesus' words. 
This is not all there is, they proclaimed. There's more. We're not constrained to live in the box anymore. We're not constrained to live in the limited reality. There's more. And they went out with the love of God. And they went out with the forgiveness of God. And they went out with the mercy and grace and life of God, unfearful for their own lives, knowing that their futures also were imperishable futures, knowing that their bodies could be crucified and that their bodies could be crushed and their bodies could be tortured and their bodies could be destroyed and they could go to financial ruin and they could be shipwrecked and they could be denied of their desires and they could go through all of that stuff and it wouldn't matter because their future was an imperishable one. They went out with the message of Jesus, the message of love, the message of hope the message of grace and mercy and goodness and acceptance and tolerance and forgiveness. And they served people and they loved people and they cared for those who were being crushed by Roman aggression and they loved their enemies and they prayed for their persecutors and they laid a path that was followed by their children and by their great, great, great grandchildren and followed by Gandhi and followed by Martin Luther King Jr. and followed by Mother Teresa. And they transformed their generation and they transformed history in the West. And then they grew old. And then their bodies began to fail them. But having seen in Jesus what they saw, they were marked forever. They were marked with an unquenchable hope. And they were filled with an unquenchable trust. And when finally they lay their heads down and died, they did so in peace. When finally they laid down their laurels of service to the poor, when they laid down their laurels of compassion and kindness and goodness, they died in peace confident that Jesus was the firstborn of many of these new spiritual, physical bodies, confident that their future was secure, confident that the love of God was their inheritance, confident that love and joy and peace and goodness would be their portion. I am the resurrection and the life, they remembered Jesus saying, Believe in me, and you never die. And so on there, with their last breath, some of them on the Roman gallows, some of them in the death throes of old age, they were filled with anticipation of a new horizon that was before them. Today, they said as they died, I will be in paradise. And so now, this many years later, We have those same promises. We've been told that same story. Again and again and again, we've heard the story of hope and we've heard the story of promise. However, unlike that generation, down deep in many of our souls, there's a slight pessimism about death. Unlike those who walked with Jesus, Perhaps we really suspect at some deep part of us that this life is all there is. Perhaps we suspect or a little worried that at the end they put us in a box 
They put us in a ground, in the ground, and that's all there is. That's a pretty common suspicion among human beings. Freud called it the death instinct. Down deep inside of us, there's this nagging little fear that this might be all there is. Unlike those who got to see that physical, spiritual body and whose eyes were awakened, we, many of us, come to our deathbeds and we quietly pray something along the lines of, Lord, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. And then we die. Now, I believe this story that I'm rehearsing for us today. I really do. I have my own doubts like you do. But I do believe this story. And I believe that we too, when our bodies die, have a reality-altering experience. I believe that when we breathe our last, we experience something that so astonishes us and so dazzles us and so dumbfounds us. I believe that like those who saw the firstborn of this new kind of creation, that we don't have the categories in our mind, the consciousness in our mind to be able to experience it. Paul, who seemed to understand these kinds of things, wrote about it, and he said this, No eye can see, and no ear can hear, and no mind can imagine the wonderful things that God has prepared for us. One moment we are in this perishable reality, and then in another moment we are in an imperishable reality. So when I let my imagination go and I begin to run a fantasy in my mind about what that might be like, I have this fantasy about the thief who was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. Today, Jesus says to him, you will be with me in paradise. And I imagine this guy thinking about what Jesus had just said. And I imagine him believing Jesus because I suspect that he had seen something of Jesus when he wasn't on the cross that made him believe. And I suspect he saw something of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross that made him believe because he spoke up and he said to the other thief, hey, 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 back off. This is something going on here. And so I think that when Jesus said to him today, you'll be with me in paradise, I imagine that he really believed it. But what I don't imagine is that he had any categories in his brain to know what that meant. I imagine that when he thought about paradise, there might have been palm trees there. And I imagine that when he thought about paradise, there was some really nice tents. And I imagine when he thought about paradise, there was some number of virgins, maybe 70. (laughs) And then I imagine him in my fantasy that I'm playing in my mind, that he breathed his last on the cross there. And then he was beyond his body. And then I imagine shock. And I imagine being stunned. And I imagine disorientation. And I imagine him being at complete loss in way, way above his head, experiencing something that he didn't even have the consciousness to comprehend. And in my fantasy, I imagine him with his reality being blown. I don't know if time exists on the other side of this body, and so how about chronologies? I don't know about that, but I imagine his consciousness slowly starting to catch up with the new reality into which he was immersed. And then I imagine him finally being able to say at some point, oh, 
That's what he meant. And that's what I imagine. And then every once in a while, I imagine my own last breath. And every once in a while, I overcome my own death instinct, my own sense of pessimism that this is all there is. And when this happens, I have a catch in my breath. And when this happens, there's a wisp of anticipation. Some butterflies that attend as I consider the adventure that waits on the other side of my last heartbeat. And this is our story. As followers of Jesus, this is our story. And this is what our story tells you, awaits you. That Jesus was just the firstborn. And that you are next. And that when you breathe your last, a new reality awaits you. A reality that is beyond your current level of consciousness to even experience. But it is good. And you are safe. And you are loved. As I was preparing for this morning, I did some reading and I read several sermons by other ministers who had written their Easter sermons. And I was ran across a story in one of those sermons from a Lutheran minister in Seattle. His name is Edward Marquardt. I thought that was a fine name, Marquardt. <laughs> I will never forget my last conversation with my mom. She died not that long ago, and it's still very tough. She told me that she didn't want to die because she had just purchased new blue carpet for the new apartment. She had the same beige carpet for 20 years in her old low-income apartment, and that carpet had been beige-brown. And they put brand-new carpet in their new apartment, and their new apartment had a view of the cornfields of Minnesota. She said, I don't want to die. I really like that new carpet. I have a nice apartment and it has a view of the cornfields, and she died. Poor mother, poor us. But I believe mother woke up, and I bet she said, this is better than blue carpet. This is better than cornfields in Minnesota. I bet mom was astonished and astounded, Amazed, awestruck, dazzled, and dumbfounded by the beauty that was beyond her imagination. Today we celebrate Easter. Today we celebrate something bigger than our categories of reality. Today we celebrate something unknown and something beyond us. Today we celebrate something that some people quite some time ago saw but could not adequately explain. Today we celebrate a hope that reality is not limited. Today we celebrate that love and joy and peace are not limited. Today we celebrate that we are safe. And from that position of safety we can respond to the call of God to go out and make the earth right, 
to set right what is wrong, to make loving what is unloving, to respond to the call of God to go out and bring peace to conflict, to respond to the call of God and go out and bring healing to woundedness, to respond to the call of God and to go out and bring justice to injustice, to respond to God and to go out and to care for the earth that he has created, to respond to the call of God and go out and bring sufficiency to poverty, to visit the sick and to visit the dying with hope, to visit prisoners and bring with us the acceptance of God and the grace of God, to love our enemies and to extend grace to those who mistreat us, and we can respond to this call of God because we are safe. And from that safe place, we can truly follow Jesus. And because we are safe, we can break out of a Christian spirituality that has become so ingrown over these generations and has grown so ill. And we can love the earth as Jesus loves the earth For he is risen. He is risen indeed. And so, Lord, I ask that you would awaken us to the hope that is resident in this Easter day. Awaken us to the life that is within us because your spirit is within us. Awaken us to the love that is within us because your spirit is within us. Awaken us to the destiny that is within us because your spirit is within us. Awaken us to the call to go off into this earth, carrying the spirit of God within our very beings and bringing goodness and life and light where we go because we are safe. And because our future is secure. And because there is a spiritual, physical future before us. And because there is a real and not real future before us. And because there is a physical, spiritual reality before us. Lord, awaken us to the truth that is resident within our very beings. Be it so, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.